Okay, well, let's go ahead and get started. You're just one minute behind here. So really, really glad to have everybody here. We um, um, appreciate uh, this uh, opportunity to do this study during the wintertime. Um, so, and as you may know, we are looking uh, this semester at this, or this uh, quarter, winter quarter, at the question of the, the process of Christian salvation. That's the best way I know to put it. The, the way in which God, or the great acts that God sort of enacts and, and works through in order to bring a person about to be a Christian. Um, and, and Peter actually says at one point in one of his letters that the gospel is this thing that even the angels long to look at it, which is a really cool idea. I'm not really sure exactly what that means. Um, did they miss something? Is there a class? I don't know. But the bottom line is there's something so fascinating to the angelic beings that they just want to look at it over and over again and see what it was that God did. And so theologians throughout the years have sort of enjoyed uh, the great privilege of walking through the way in which these pieces fit together, especially in terms of priority. Uh, which ones in the Bible sort of uh, come first? Which ones flow from the other? And in the midst of seeing that flow, there are just amazing things that come out about what it means how God brought us about to be a Christian. So I've decided to call this uh, turning the gem, which is where we simply take this great diamond of our salvation and wait to see how it cuts up the light when we turn it. So when we turn it this week, uh, we come up to, of course, we've been calling this the order of salvation. Uh, in Latin, it's ordo salutis. And we've been looking at union with Christ and election. And today what we're going to do is we're going to cover number three and number four at the same time. Uh, calling and regeneration, uh, these two ideas of what comes next. And it's a beautiful picture, especially building off what we talked about last week. Last week, I tried to convince you that, that one of the great things about the way in which Christians conceive of salvation is that God had you in his mind uh, before there was anything good or bad in you. And so there's this love that we all long for that is, that is abstracted from the things that are inside of us. We wish that there was someone who would love us just for who we are, the way we are. A love that is its own sort of justification, not because you are dot, dot, dot. Conditional love can be a drag and honestly not love really at all. Uh, but God's love is before time. He set his love upon his people before time. So that was election. Today we want to talk about the idea of being called uh, and regenerated. Okay, so uh, forgive me, every illustration that I have and know of is from pop culture, so it's, it's just the way that I function. <clears throat> but I wonder if any of you remember this scene from a very famous uh, late 1970s movie called Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, Academy Award-winning uh, portrayal uh, by Richard Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus is just a simple electrical uh, uh, worker uh, who, while driving out one particular night during a great outage, uh, has a close encounter uh, with an unidentified flying object. Literally sitting in his car, this big light kind of beams down on him and you know, apparently runs some kind of scientific experiments and then sort of zips off down the road as he sees it. And Dreyfus's life just completely goes haywire. To everyone around him, he looks like he's gone nuts because he can't get this vision out of his head. It starts one particular evening over uh, dinner where he's piling up mashed potatoes on his plate and there's just this shape that keeps coming back over and over and over again to him until literally one morning the guy just snaps and begins to sort of, 
you know, load up all kinds of garden equipment and bricks and dirt into his kitchen window, and he constructs this thing in the middle of his, uh, of his den. Of course, his wife and his children have been taken away at this point because they're convinced that daddy has gone crazy. Until all of a sudden, he sees the news report that there's something going on, lo and behold, at Devil's Tower in Wyoming. <laughs> and as they put the news report on, he looks and realizes that this vision actually had some meaning. Now, why do I use that story when we're talking about calling and regeneration? Well, because God's people have always talked about what it means to come to Christ in terms of an internal compulsion. There was a sense of being drawn into it. Sometimes it even felt like almost against their will, but we're coming to that. <laughs> in other words, it wasn't, very rarely do you have a Christian stand up in the midst of their testimony and say, well, I'm glad to give my testimony today. Uh, when I was not a Christian, you know, I went through, you know, sort of the buffet of religions that are out there. I, I put my sort of a, my spoon into Hinduism and take a look at its basic life principles. And, and I tried Islam on for a little while and so, tried to get a sense of what I felt about that. And really when I came down to it, just Christianity was the best fit for me. <laughs> Nobody says that. What do they say? They say, you know, I was sitting there and I just couldn't get it out of my mind. You know, I left church that day and God just would not let me forget it. You know, I was living in a certain way that I knew was contrary to what he said and it just like every single night, I couldn't go to sleep for thinking about it. In other words, every Christian has this sense that something was moving in on them. A little bit like Richard Dreyfus <laughs> in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Come on now. That worked well. That worked in there. So let's talk about calling and regeneration. That's Richard Dreyfus getting the big heavenly vision even as we speak. Um, I want to look at these uh, uh, five things this morning. We want to look at the origin of calling and regeneration, the need, the power, the nature, and the effect. So we're going to go blowing through this. Since we had to cover two, uh, there was a lot to want to get in here. Let's look first of all at the origin of calling and regeneration. This is very simply stated. Uh, there's always only one that does the calling, and that's God. That's, it's overwhelming, the biblical evidence. I know these are microscopic, so don't try to read them. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Galatians 1, but when he who has set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ Jesus our Lord. First Peter, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Then finally, Romans 8, the famous one, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. But the bottom line is this. Um, God is the one who does the calling. The origin of that gnawing sense of nagging compulsion to follow up, to figure out, to pray through, whatever, has its origin in God. And look, we talked about last week, I'm not going to entertain it again, how a lot of people have made a lot of false inferences from that idea. Some would look and say to themselves, or falsely re uh, re uh, reason with themselves, well, since God actually is going to do all this, since he does the calling, my primary responsibility here is to wait to hear the call. 
You may have heard the call, but I haven't. It's shocking how often I hear uh, people on the outside of the faith talk about this. A number of years ago, I read a memoir uh, by Rick Bragg about his mother uh, uh, called All Over But the Shoutin'. Uh, it's a fantastic book about growing up in the sort of hill country of northeast Alabama uh, and some of the sort of uh, rudimentary religious uh, influences. But at one point during the book, he says, you know, I see my mother's faith and there's times which I really wish it would happen to me. But thus far, I remain unaffiliated. <laughs> I'm just on the outside, but I'm waiting. I almost wish God would do something, but he just hasn't at this point. Look, Remember what we talked about last week. We're not just saying that God ordains the, the ends of salvation, but he also ordains the means as well. And what that means is he's sovereign over the whole thing. And so therefore I am free, we said last week, to move and act in the way in which my heart directs me. Hold on to that idea of the heart. I'm going to return to that this morning and the next week we're going to dive into it big time. But hold on to that thought. The second thing though is the Bible talks repeatedly about the fact that there are those who call, who were called, but who never came. In Matthew 22, Jesus tells this story about this wedding feast that happened where there are a lot of guests who were invited, but they make excuses. So the wedding party is instructed to go and plead with them to come. For that reason, it's appropriate for Christians to plead with those on the outside of the faith to come to faith. It's, it's appropriate for us to do that uh, as God sort of ordains it. So the origin of regeneration and calling uh, is in God. He's the one, that's where it starts. So the second question is, why is there a need, the need for regeneration? Well, very simply, because the Bible's best description of you prior to your becoming a Christian is that you were dead. That's the vividness of the description there. And frankly, there's been, there's been a, a lot of controversy around this sometime. A lot of people, theologians especially, love to spend their time entertaining the question about what a dead person can and cannot do, spiritually speaking. But I think this actually misses the point. Paul, when he gets to places like, let's say, Ephesians chapter 2, no greater sort of outline of this than Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says that you, prior to your coming to Christ, were dead in your sins and trespasses. But God made you alive in Christ Jesus. You were dead, but God made you alive. What did he mean? When you were dead, because there's a lot of people on the outside of Christianity who would look and say, hmm, okay, there's a lot of things you've said that are insulting, but this one feels like the most. What do you mean I'm dead? I'm alive, I'm walking around, I make choices all the time. Well, Tim Keller makes a great point when he says that for most people, the reason why it sounds weird for the Christian uh, community to talk about being spiritually dead before coming to Christ is because for most people, Christianity is, is an institutional thing. Uh, it's a cultural thing. It's, a, it's an intellectual thing. It's like, well, you know, I found Christianity acceptable and I moved towards it. In other words, for them, Christianity is like a matter of degree. I mean, I can be a Christian every now and then, I think. Um, but, but the truth is, the Bible says there's a whole different way of talking about it. That is, when a person becomes a Christian, something gets hold of the center of you. And things that used to be sort of spiritually vague abstractions, they become real. And the way in which they become real feels to them like their life prior to was like being a walking dead. The walking dead. See, look at all the cultural influences just come right out, pouring out of his mouth. Think about it this way. <clears throat> Think about the way in which we look, talk about life. There's vegetable life, animal life, and human life. They grade right on up, do they not? 
And though every one of those is a type of life, when you're compared with one, if you're living in one of those levels, if you're comparing yourself to someone in the lower level, it's almost like a, not like a life at all. Why do we say that when someone is not functioning at all, that they have reached a vegetable state? You know, it's alive in a sense, but it's actually subliving. It's subhuman. And what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 2 is, is that there is, as, there, there is a level of life that is as much above human natural life as it is above animal life. In other words, I, the way it feels for us when we look back at what it was like prior to the stuff breaking in on us, it felt like we were dead. <laughs> like we literally were just walking around like zombies with no real sense of what's going on. So the question becomes, how does that death manifest itself? And here's where it starts to get a little painfully familiar. <laughs> First of all, there's a decay that goes on. Death is a breaking down. When Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The deadness was in the sins. The deadness was in the trespasses. When a corpse dies, it decays. It's ugly to us. It's the stuff of horror shows, right? Death always begins the process of disintegration. When I was a kid, I remember my mother coming home one day with a package of, um, of denim iron-on knee patches. Anybody have any, any memory of these things? Because like, when you were a kid, your, your jeans used to completely wear out in the knees. It was always in the knees, right? Because you were always crawling around the dirt. You see, kids, in the old days, we would go outside, like where there was dirt and stuff and no computers. Um, and what would happen is you would get dirt on your knees and you'd have these huge giant holes. And so what your mom would have to do is she'd have to come in and you literally put them on the inside of your jeans and iron them on. And that was the way you patched the hole in your, in your jeans. And you're thinking to yourself, what kind of hovel did you live in, Les? Um, of course it seemed like you were dead before. Um, <clears throat> anyway. Um, but look, I have, look, here's the point. Um, sin is decay. Sin erodes life. It pulls things away. I, I remember very vividly the first times when I saw a dead body uh, in real life. Um, some of them were at funerals. Uh, one of them actually, you know, now that I, I live on a highway, sometimes I've, seen, I've come across car accidents where I've seen uh, dead bodies on the side of the road before. Um, and I'll be honest with you, you really don't really get over that. I mean, I, I, there's a part of me that wonders if even a mortician would look and be like, yeah, it doesn't really, doesn't really go away after a while. There is something about, if you've never experienced it, there's just a colossal sense of not rightness, <laughs> When you're around a dead body, you keep waiting for the, the, the chest to rise and breathe. But the Bible says that this is the way God looks at you before he brings you to life. God sees in us what we see when we look at a dead body. There's a supreme not rightness about what he sees in us before he comes and does this great thing. Following the course of this world means that we are part of the decay of life. The world's whole value system that creates political oppression and bureaucratic tyranny, materialism, racial oppression, whatever. It all comes in Paul's mind as a result of trespasses and sins that dead people are creating around them. The world stinks around us, and it's the stench of death that comes in, Paul says. Secondly, it's not just decay, but it's also a sense of slavery. Paul says that at once we lived a, a, a sort of... Um, uh, in the passions of our flesh. A little word passions there. Uh, Keller got a lot of mileage out of the, realizing what the translation was about it. 
Typically, if you talk about a, a desire in the Bible, that's the Greek word thumia. But the word that we have translated passions has the little prefix epi on it, epithumia, kind of like an epi pen, but an epithumia. And what it is, is not just a desire, but an overwhelming desire. It's an over-desire. It's a desire that completely takes over you. And what Paul is saying is there's a certain point where you think you have your sin when actually the sin kind of has you. Um, I'm enslaved to it. I can't do anything about it. Being dead means that we've lost any real freedom to be the humanity that God wants us to be. There's a sense of enslavement. We feel, we feel powerless against our passions. They drive us from one place to the other without any real sense of connection. Finally, there's a need for calling and regeneration because sin has brought a condemnation. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that in verse 3 that we were by nature children of wrath. What does it mean to be wrath's child? Well, there's a great old uh, 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 Greek mythology uh, story about uh, a kiss-up to King uh, Dionysus uh, II by the name of Damocles. And Damocles kept talking about how great it would to be the king. Oh, well, you got, to, you got it made, you know, because you're the king and everything's great for you, right? And so uh, Dionysus is like, okay, I'll tell you what, why don't you come take the throne for a little while? And as soon as, Dion as, soon as Damocles sits in the throne, he looks up and notices that there's a huge sword hanging by its hilt from the ceiling by just a, a horse's hair, it says, by the thinnest of threads. What's he saying? He's saying, it wasn't until I got in that place until I realized that there was the sword of Damocles hanging over me, waiting at any moment to break and to absolutely crush me. That's what Paul is talking about, that there's a sense of condemnation, of walking around, waiting for everything good around me to come crashing down. It's looking forward in your life with a sense of absolute dread instead of hopefulness that things might change and things might become, might become better. Everyone knows not only that there are things that are out there that are not the way in which they, they're supposed to be, but that there's something in here, in me. I'm complicit with this and the deadness that sort of bears in all around me. So if you want to get your bearings with God's despair, God's perspective, you have to, you have to see the decay, the slavery, and the condemnation to realize why he calls it dead. Uh, Thomas Boston, uh, a name that I want you to remember because he's going to return back in the weeks to come, has this great uh, quote. He says, man is in respect to his spiritual state altogether disjointed. Ooh, I love that, that, that word. We're disjointed. There's a randomness. It's not connected. Every faculty of the soul is, as it were, dislocated. But in regeneration, the Lord loosen, loosens every joint and sets it right again. Now, this change made in regeneration is, first of all, a change of qualities or dispositions. It's not a change of the substance, but of the qualities of the soul. Is there some magical thing where I'm like, oh, there's something new inside of me. My, my blood is different. My, my bones are different. No, it's a change in the qualities of the soul that God does and calls forth in us. Okay, so next we go then to the power of uh, regeneration calling. This is just one little point I want to make on this because I feel like it's, it's really important. <laughs> um, one of the things that gets weird is a number of years ago, I, I gave up Christian music, and some of you can be like, why would you do that? And I'm, It's okay. I'm sort of coming back around in many ways, kind of going back to it. But of all the artists that I really 
uh, appreciate the most. Stephen Curtis Chapman, I think, is at the top of my list. When I see guys who have not just a sort of a, a, a private integrity, a musical integrity, uh, but also a public integrity, like this guy has got it going on. Um, except for one album. <laughs> um, he released an album called For the Sake of the Call years ago that when I was going through college, it was one of my favorite albums. You may not re- remember it, but the lead track on that album was called For the Sake of the Call. And the chorus uh, sort of uh, went like this. The lyric went, We will abandon it all for the sake of the call. No other reason at all but for the sake of the call. Wholly devoted to live and to die for the sake of the call. Well, what, what, what Chapman is doing is, is he's looking at the scene where Jesus comes along in places like Mark chapter 1 and calls the disciples. And the song is sort of saying, in a sense, look at how these disciples Dropped it all, man. I mean, they left their nets sitting there. And when Jesus called, they just walked up and went away. And you know what? We ought to be that same way. Would to God that we had people who had the same faith as these disciples. Would that there was a generation that would rise up that was faithful like these people to answer Jesus for no other reason than the fact that he called and to let everything go behind. Come on, who's with me? (laughs) Let us pray. And that's the end of the lesson, right? But this is what's wrong with that. (laughs) When you read through the Gospels, I had a great moment with an intern years ago, uh, one of my very first interns, actually, when I was the campus minister at the University of Memphis. Uh, All of our interns, if you don't know, go through a study program, uh, which takes them through every book of the Bible. They have to do outlines of them. They read books. They write book reports. Uh, They don't always get their book reports in on time, Brian Sorgenfrey will tell you, but it it happens in such a way that... uh, uh, we, we, we try to make them do it anyway. But I remember, and what happens is, is we'll get into staff meeting and spend some time discussing the stuff that they read. And this intern came in one time after reading through the Gospels. She spent two months kind of reading from Matthew all the way to John. And I said, look, what were your impressions just from the, from the distance of the Gospels? And she was like, oh, that's totally easy. She was like, what is up with the disciples? I was like, what are you talking about? She was like, do they get anything right at all? And I suddenly realized, you know, no, they don't. You cannot read the Gospels and somehow think that the lesson to be drawn from their following Jesus is, you know what, we should be more like the disciples. Look at how they respond to Jesus' call. They left it all. And we stand back like, let's all be like the disciples. That is, an, that is a false inference from that lesson and why is it that we don't instead of looking at the sort of moral standard of the disciples look instead at the wonder of the power of Jesus call in other words by the time you get to the end of the gospels you ought to go back to when Jesus called these buffoons and said whoa there was a whole lot more going on when Jesus said drop it follow me there was a whole lot more going on than I thought at the first. I didn't have anything to do with them. I didn't have any idea. The fact that they were like, we need to leave our, our livelihood and our things. Let's just go follow him, right? The fact they did that is far more a demonstration of the power of the call. Look, I just want to put a small little, uh, little seed in there. Um, don't listen to Bible teachers who think that the Bible is primarily about you and about what you are supposed to do. 
We actually call that moralism. The idea that the Bible is full of stories with a moral. The end of which is an admonition for you to go and behave properly in the view of these great examples of the faith. Dare, as it were, to be a Daniel, <laughs> staring down the, uh, uh, the, 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 the sort of cultural influences of your day. Go dare to be a Daniel, and let's pray for God to give us faithful and do so. Let us pray. And they walk out without a spiritual power. That's not spiritual power. And I would argue it's actually not what the Bible intends itself to be about. The Bible is first and foremost not about you. It's first and foremost about Jesus. And if we fail to find the way in which the Bible is coming along and saying this is ultimately about him, and then in the light of that, there is something that we can apply to our own lives, we have missed it. And you're living in the basis of moralism. And you know what it'll do? It will drain you of spiritual power and spiritual vitality. It's bad for you. Don't listen to it. Don't listen to that kind of stuff. Okay, yes, the problem of moralism was the last one. The greatness of Jesus is the point. The point of all of them. All right, fourthly, the nature of calling and regeneration. Okay, Les, could you just like maybe do, uh, I don't know, like a definition of the two words? Why, of course. What is calling? Calling, very simple, is this. There's an internal and an external call. The internal call is what we've been talking about. There's that act of God's grace where something that was dead is made alive. In other words, what is going on in an internal call is the exact same thing that's going on in Genesis 1, chapter, Genesis 1, 1. What happens right there? God looks over and there's nothing but a flood and chaos and disformity. And what does he say? Let there be light. And does it say, then he went and made the light? No. God said, let there be light, and there was light. <laughs> it just happened by, by divine fiat. He speaks and it is. That's God's power. Calling is what happens in the soul when God does that. Secondly, there's an external call, which means that it's the way by which that call is transmitted to an individual. The reason why I mentioned this is because over and over again in the Bible, when we hear about this external call, do you know where it primarily comes from? This is going to sound weird to you. Preaching. Now look, I don't know your impression of preaching. It may be for you. It's kind of like, oh, well, now we're ready for the talk. Um, all right, that's fine. When is this going to be over? Are we, are we going to get done in time, you know, to make it to... Uh, you know, to <laughs> When I was growing up, there was, there was a cafeteria called Brentlings uh, that became Piccadilly. Remember the Piccadilly cafeteria? Man, this was, the kids, this was fantastic, okay? You literally had this tray, and you walked through, and you just went past everything, and you could grab whatever, and your dad was always being like, only one thing of Jell-O, son. Um, <laughs> because you could get the little dish of Jell-O, you know, with the red cubes in it, and then slurp it all up. It was fantastic. But I remember our preacher always stand up and say, now look, I promise I'm going, to get you, I'm going to get you home in time to be first in line at Britling's. You know. What is the sermon? The Bible says that the external calling happens when, when God's people stand up and proclaim the Bible. Uh, one of my New Testament professors, Dr. Chamley, used to say that the Bible doesn't have to have life breathed into it. It comes with its own power. Romans 1, 16, remember this one? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Notice it doesn't say that the Bible, the gospel talks about the power of God, but it is the power of God. That means all it has to be done is to be unleashed. You just got to let it go. If I, am held, if I am held up among men, I will draw all men to myself. That's awesome because <laughs> it's the mission of every missionary. Okay? 
So calling. What's the definition of regeneration? Well, I'm going to borrow from, uh, from a great theology book. This is a great little reference thing. I know Christmas has already passed, but uh, you, <laughs> go use that, uh, that gift card that you've got uh, to pick up a copy of Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. Now, I know you're thinking, why would I ever <laughs> do that? In a million years, I would never have thought of that. Now, look, just bear with me. Having a piece of reference on your shelf that is arranged topically, that you can be like, what does the Bible say about that? There are few better, at least written in the 20th century, than Louis Burkhoff, Systematic Theology. Here's his definition. It's fantastic. He says, regeneration, listen to this, is the implanting of the principle of new spiritual life in man. A radical change, and I love this, uh, I love this, this phrase here, the governing disposition of the soul. Ooh, what is the governing disposition of your soul? That's a great little uh, Sunday reflection question there. Well, the governing disposition of the soul, I'm going to argue, and I'm going to mention this very briefly because next week we're going to be just all in the midst of it. Um, the governing disposition of your soul is housed in a thing that the Bible refers to as your heart. And I realize that there's a lot of cultural associations that you have with what the heart is. And if, if I can try not to be insulting to you, I'll bet you they're wrong. And next week, we're going to look very carefully at what the heart is in the Bible's definition, how I am to understand it, and how God does it work. Well, the bottom line that, but for today, I simply want to say that regeneration, when Jesus comes along and he's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you remember this conversation? Or is it four? Nicodemus is three, right, preacher boy? Um, Okay, so Nicodemus having this conversation, and he looks, and Nicodemus is kind of like, you know, we think you're a cool teacher, and blah, 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 and Jesus is like, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, you're not even going to see the kingdom unless you're born again. Nicodemus is like, blah, born again. Mm, not sure about this about. I'm not sure I can go back into my mother's womb. That's a weird con concept anyway. Um, and Jesus is like, look, I can't believe you're Israel's teacher, and you don't understand this. And he's like, in order for there to be the new fruits that I'm coming to bring, there have to be new roots that only I can create. You have to be born of the Spirit. By the way, the Spirit's like the wind. You're not exactly sure where it came from or where exactly it's going, but that's what it's like for everybody who's born of the Spirit, right? Look, the point is this. <clears throat> There's something done in this fundamental place that colors every part of your life. And it's so radical and so transformational, it's like going through the birth canal again, Jesus said, into a completely different way of looking at life to be born again. Now, what that means, we're going to talk about next week. It looks like faith and repentance, and that's next week's discussion. But let me see if I can sort of jump into this existentially. Like, what does this look like, Les? What does this kind of feel like? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> over time, I feel like there have been experiences of people who, who were exposed to the Word of God in some way. Maybe it was through a conversation. Maybe it was through a Bible study. Maybe they came to church or something. Maybe it was something they remember from their childhood. Who knows? But they hear something, and they're strangely drawn to it. Now, it's not always a, 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 an enjoyable drawing. Sometimes it's just sort of an annoyance. Like, ugh, you know, what is, get that out of my head. I can't stop thinking about that thing. But suddenly they begin to doubt their old way of life. Um, they're rethinking their life around these new uh, set of truths. But there's something important. Regeneration can actually happen without the person knowing that regeneration happened. Now, some of you are going to get a little unnerved about this, but regeneration can happen in the heart of a person 
before they really have any idea what's going on. It can even happen, from, we get from the biblical evidence, in the heart of very small children. And if you're John the Baptist, prior to your actually coming through the birth canal, of all things. But here's the point. Something started in someone. Before getting all your mind in there, wait a minute, what? Somebody became a Christian in the womb? Don't, don't, don't let that freak you out. Um, you can mess with that later on. I'm just trying to say that there's something inside that gets there that's almost like, a, it's almost like that grain of sand in a clam. And it's just like, oh, this thing is driving me crazy. What do I do about it? I've got I to gotta relieve that tension that's there. <clears throat> Look, y'all, I simply want to say that oftentimes the best form of evangelism, oh, it's actually not even oftentimes, all the time, the best form of evangelism is not to have someone kneel down and pray a prayer at that moment. Now, people get all bent out of shape like, well, well, I thought this is what we were supposed to do, where we've been instructed. If someone comes to you and says, I feel like something's been going on, I don't know what's happening, what should I do, should I pray? Look at them and be like, yes, <laughs> I pray a lot. Um, do it over and over again, as a matter of fact. Like, talk to that voice that's sort of working on you. Look, because something is working in that person that you don't have the privy, the, the prior access to. I would argue that the best way that to evangelize that person is to invite them back. <laughs> Keep looking. Like, yes, go with that thought. And some people are like, well, I'm just afraid because I don't know if I can answer all their questions. Well, thank goodness it's not. You're the one that's answering the questions. <laughs> Your job is to simply be a pointer, you know, like the spirit. Like, you know, it sounds to me like this Jesus guy is really freaking you out. I think you ought to go look into it more. Uh, uh, should I like pray a prayer? Yes, absolutely. Pray and ask him for forgiveness right now. You're probably going to do it again in a week. If you're smart, actually in about five minutes, you're going to want to do it again. But yes, pray. I mean, should I, go to, should I join a church? Yes. <laughs> you, want to, you want to figure out the body of Christ? Go join the body of Christ. Well, I mean, should I, should I go to a Bible study? Absolutely. But again, our evangelism is intending to get someone pointed to him. Instead of risking them thinking that it was their prayer that made them a Christian. The calling and the regeneration are a work of God. And so let it be about what God is doing in that person's life, rather than sort of getting anxious about whether or not they checked a box. Stay curious. <laughs> um, this is the way I used to end RUF uh, uh, messages with this all the time. At the very end, I would say, look, for some of you, you've never heard this before. For some of you, you are churning on the inside and you're wondering what to do. And look, I just got one piece of advice for you. Come back next week. Just come back next week. Just, just give yourself a semester where you say, you know what? I'm going to look into this Jesus character. I'm going to figure out what this guy is about. I'm going to actually start to pray about it. Over and over again, what our ministers end up sort of coming back and saying is, is a student will wake up and be like, I think, I think I got converted this year. I really can't explain it. I don't really know when it happened. I can't really point to a time. But all of a sudden, when I look back at where I was this time last year, it feels like I was dead. Hmm. That's a different way of looking at evangelism. So I wanted to throw in that existential look at it. Let me finish with this, and we'll have some time for questions. The effect of calling and regeneration. Uh, again, talk a whole lot more about this next week, but I just want to throw out three quick things. Profound security. Once you start to realize that the calling is of God and he's the one who brings the new birth, you can finally, you can stop worrying, right? Because he, if, 
God has not let go of you. One of the hardest things to wrap your mind around is whether or not God gave up on me the way I give up on myself and others. And to all of a sudden have those doubts kind of come crashing in that like, surely I have outspent it now. There's no way that he's going to let me back again. <laughs> Calling and regeneration, look and say, you can be absolutely secure in the knowledge that Jesus has you. Profound humility. <laughs> Paul calls this a place without boasting. There's no boasting in the Christian life. This humility comes about when we start to look and say, I am not responsible for this. I'm not responsible for this. This didn't happen because of any goodness in me. It's because of what he did in me. And therefore, humility, humility is the defining characteristic of the born-again person. Be very careful when you start to feel bowed up. You know what I'm talking about? Suddenly you, feel like you start to feel that sort of righteous indignation on the inside. Christians kind of have this instinct that's kind of a stopgap to some of that. Not that a lot of things don't need to be righteously uh, uh, angry, be angry, whatever, be angry at righteously. But for Christians, they always have a check because they look back and be like, ah, I feel like I'm giving myself a lot of credit right now. They stop in that because there's a profound humility. And then thirdly and finally, there is a profound uh, transformation. It's a huge thing. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, who saved, says, God who saved us and called us, listen, to a holy calling. Interesting. He saved us and called us to holiness. When you think of your new birth, think about it as an installment for what is coming. My new, being born again is a first installment the bot, my, that, that my body and even the whole world will one, ta- one day take, take uh, uh, part in. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation that God is taking this creation and renewing it all. He's fixing it all. If you ever want to do a fun little Bible study, uh, look at how, how the Bible talks about hearing and calling. It's very interesting. Calling and hearing is equal to really power and obedience in the Bible. Uh, the word that Kurt's been talking about in Romans the last few weeks, uh, where, where Paul keeps talking about uh, uh, the obedience of faith, it's, it's not just obedience, it's a unique obedience. It's the obedience of faith, a brand new kind of obedience. Not an obedience like it used to be in the Old Testament, but an obedience that comes by faith. The word obedience there actually comes from the root word for hearing. Isn't that interesting? Hearing and obeying in the Bible's eyes are the same thing. Hearing is a moving towards thing. Titus does it best in chapter 3, um, 4 through 8. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done in us because of right, uh, uh, by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. What's Paul wanting to say? There's a transformation of life. The point of this is to remake the world. (laughs) To remake the world, to begin to undo the junk that our sin and the death and decay have done around us. It's a complete and utter transformation. But do not move on without looking very carefully at the opening thing that I actually italicize. Uh, Emphasis mine, as you're supposed to say. Notice where it all starts. It is when goodness and loving kindness of God appears. John Piper, in a wonderful sermon he did on Titus 3 when I was doing my research here, 
talks about this passage and he says, look, we can spend a lot of time talking about regeneration, renewal of the spirit, justification, hope of eternal life, glorification. We can spend a lot of time talking about this. But you got to understand that it begins with an apprehension of the goodness and the loving kindness of God. When that starts to take hold, you better buckle up because there is a whole host of stuff that's coming down. In other words, as you begin to look at the gospel and suddenly it becomes like a spinning gem and you say to yourself, I have got to figure that thing out. You know what might have happened? You might have been born again. 